Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Oh boy, my next guest, Sixto Cancel. Grew up in foster care, was adopted, uh, survived physical and emotional abuse, turned all of that pain and tragedy into something beautiful and creative and successful where he is paying it forward and helping to change the lives of foster kids and foster families going forward. He's the founder of Think of Us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sixto Cancel as much as I enjoyed having it. Welcome to the podcast, Sixto. Thank you for being here. The pleasure is mine. I'm super excited to be here with you today. I'm more excited. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, you have really done and created something powerful. Think of us is a powerful resource uh, for those in the foster care community. Tell us a little bit about your organization. Well, I started Think of Us um, to be focused on how is it that we transform the foster care system, not just improve it, but truly think about redesigning its DNA, because it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to work today. When a child is removed from their biological home, they're promised that life will be a little bit better and that they will either go back home or expand their forever family or they'll get their, their custody transferred. And unfortunately, that's just not what's happening for so many young people. What is happening for so many young people? What do you want us to know? Well, I guess I'll start with even my own personal narrative. I came into foster care as an 11-month-old baby. And by the time I was six years old, I was actually able to live with my bio parent for a year. But I found myself back in foster care. And that started the journey to adoption. And when I was adopted, it wasn't the forever family that I think, you know, people thought it was going to be. By 13, I was already experiencing a lot of physical abuse, other types of abuses, and then found myself homeless, uh, couch surfing. And I literally had to tape a recorder to my chest to record the abuse because I was this tall-looking black kid making allegations against this white-skinned woman, and I wasn't really believed. And so it wasn't until I had that physical evidence that I was allowed back into the foster care system. And that's when I became passionate about how do you actually fix this system? Because it was so absurd to me that I had to like navigate so much just to be believed to be placed back in the system. What is so incredible to me is that you had to navigate just those things that you described in just a couple of minutes. Let's rewind for a moment. So you were originally put in the foster care system at 11 months old, and then you're reunited with your biological, uh, one parent or both parents? Just my biological mother. You're, re you're reunited with your biological mother at what age? At six. And how long do you remain with her? So I was in her care for 11 months and three um, weeks, so almost an exact year, but not quite a year. And what's so interesting about me coming back into the system at the age of seven is that when you look at the paperwork of the system, it will say that I was um, voluntarily placed back in foster care. But when you actually read the narrative, the paperwork, um, you'll realize that there was no choice for my biological mother. I remember her hiding us in our in, in the neighbor's apartment. We were all hidden in the kitchen cupboards. 
And when we came out, we came out to a slew of police, right? So even though the paperwork will say that it was a voluntary agreement, my mother literally had one choice. It was the choice of either sign the paperwork or go to jail. And so when we look at the system's design and its structure, this is what it's actually asking folks to make decisions around. Why were you removed from her care, if you don't mind my asking? So for a while, my mother struggled with uh, substance abuse issues. We struggled with poverty. But when we look at this moment of why I reentered foster care, the paperwork says that she signed me over to foster care. She signed me and my siblings over. But again, she had no choice. She was either having to sign us over or um, she felt like she was going to go to jail. What was the basis for the police intervention? Were there drugs in your home? Not that I'm aware of. Um, so, so not that I'm aware of at that time and not that I read in the paperwork. When I look at the paperwork that's in front of me here, it literally says like, you know, met with client. Client is appraised of the situation and then acts very inappropriately. Client continues to yell and swear and tries to make excuses and blame everyone else for her situation. Client was very upset and was threatened, ver- was threatening verbally and with gestures. Client eventually signs the voluntary form. This, and the client in this case is your mother. And this exactly. is a police report. Do you know what resulted in that initial intervention? Why did the police show up and essentially, you know, why were you in this situation where your mother felt like she had no choice? What brought them there in the first place? Do you know? Oh, yeah. So, so while, you know, there are many parents just like my biological mother who when children are placed back, we're placed back at her care, there's that monthly visit. There's that continuation of supervision. And so things like checking the cupboards to make sure that there's food, observations that are happening, and judgments that are being passed keep occurring. And so there became this point where the worker felt like there was no more supervision. There's another piece of the our case file that talks about how the worker came in and saw that the landlord was fixing the door, babysitting us while my mother was getting milk and juice, and that my little brother was climbing on the side of the porch. And just like that, you know, the social worker writes in the paperwork that there's a lack of supervision and that she instructed my biological mother to ensure that when she did have to go to the store, that she would find a more suitable babysitter because the landlord wasn't qualified enough in her opinion. So all of these things sort of snowball. Uh, You were ultimately removed from your mother's care, and then you were put into an adoptive home. You're adopted. And that's where you say that people assume that that means a happy ending. And in your case, it didn't. When, how old were you when you were adopted? So I was nine years old. I entered this courtroom. There was like this salt, uh, like salt pepper table. Um, and the judge had asked me, hey, like, do you want to be adopted? And I remember so clearly wanting just to be like, no. You know, I had always been a foster kid all my life. And so that was the identity I had had because I literally entered the system as a baby. And unfortunately, because there were so many folks around, I said yes. And I didn't realize that saying yes was also like sentencing myself to years of abuse after. At the time when the judge says, do you want to be adopted? You don't know yet what's in store. I'm interested in what you mean when you say your identity was as a foster child. 
What does that mean? Because it sounds like you're saying you were kind of ambivalent about going into a forever family. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, as that nine-year-old, I had already experienced going to multiple different foster homes, right? I had experience living with biological uh, siblings. And so this is a moment where, you know, when you're adopted, it was framed to me as a child as you got to kind of replace your parents and you got to replace your siblings with this in in this very moment. And I I don't think I had enough understanding to be like, oh, this is not a replacement. It's it's a potential expansion. But for me as that nine-year-old, it was you're adopted. Forget about everything that you've known so far. Now this is your new family. Did you have any relationship or contact with your mother at the time? Or was it, you know, with the termination of parental rights, was there a termination of all contact? So when my mother's rights were terminated, it also meant that it terminated not just my relationship and visitation with her, but it also did not um, inspire my adopted mother to even make contact with my siblings. And so I didn't get to actually um, be in contact for years with my brothers, for example. How many brothers do you have? Well, I discovered I have 11 uh, brothers and sisters. And I used to think I had four because that's how much of us lived in the house together. But as I started investigating, I found more siblings. So you're going to create for yourself some good family reunions. Let's go back to the adoption. So you're adopted And you say that your adoptive mother is abusive and you actually had to tape the the abuse because you didn't think anyone would believe you. Tell us about that, Sixto. Well, the reality was like folks did not believe me when I came forward with what was happening. And there was multiple investigations that were launched and they would open and they would close and they would open and they would close. And the dynamics was is that you would enter this home and you would see this tall black looking kid against this short white skinned looking woman and assumptions were made, right? And because I was 13 with an Afro, you know, I was treated in such a way that, oh, you must be part of the problem. And so I started to journal. I was watching Law and Order and it became so clear to me that I had to build a case. I had to get the evidence so that I can prove that I wasn't lying and that this was something that was actually happening. The physical abuse, the emotional abuse was real. And that led me to getting a tape recorder and literally taping it onto my chest so that I can get that information and then hand it over to Child Protective Services. How old were you when you were going through this? When you were taping your abuser? This was between 13 and 15. Between 13 and 15, you're being physically and emotionally abused by your adoptive mother. You have reported the abuse and no one believes you. They just think that you're lying because they didn't believe that the smaller white woman could inflict harm on uh, a taller, young, and let's remember you're a kid, you were 13, and a taller young boy, they thought that she couldn't harm you, so they didn't believe you. Yeah, as a short, white-skinned um, Puerto Rican woman, you know, they, the optics were just not in my favor. Even when the, there were times where the police would come out, and immediately it was like, 
isolating me or pushing me to the side and engaging with me differently. Like if I was going to like set off or go off. And in reality, every time they came, I was petrified. I was scared for my life. You know, I was scared that they might take me away. And so um, this is the reason why I was inspired to record and to document so much of the abuse, because I wanted the evidence so that I could defend myself. When you recorded your abuser, what did you catch? What did you capture, I should say? The physical abuse um, was captured on tape, the emotional abuse. Um, At one point, it was the consistent harassment of using the N-word or uh, using other language. Calling you, your adoptive mother was calling you the N-word. Yep. And those were hard moments. But to be honest, I feel like some of the hardest moments were, were things that were where she did where she had the other children in the home go to a private school where for me she felt like because I was black and she told me because I was black she wanted me to go to a public school you know they she got to see said these, she said that to you she yes, said you're she going to the public school because you're black yes did you have adopted siblings Yeah, so she had four of her biological own children, and then she had four that she adopted. At the time, it was three of us. Um, She, you know, after I was able to leave, she, right right before I I left, um, she adopted someone else. And everyone else was fairly light-skinned, you know, white-skinned people in the house, except me being the dark-skinned person. Sixto, um, you really lived a lot of tragedy, at a really, really young age, after you get your abuser on tape, so you you capture your adopted mother on tape uh, engaging in physical and mental abuse of you. Now people believe you. What happens next? So I came into the foster care system, um, but I was so fortunate that, like, no matter how bad the abuse was, there were always good people showing me the other side of humanity. You know, I was connected to the NAACP and I had friends there. I was connected to my church community and it was an usher from church who said, hey, I have an extra bedroom, right? The other kids had told her what was going on. And so she was just like, you can come live with me. And so literally, you know, even though I spent two years couch surfing, there wasn't a night that I had to actually spend actually sleeping on the streets because there was always a friend's mother, always a friend's, you know, sibling, you name it, where I was able to stay. And so I ended up at this usher's home. Um, So she was the usher, ended up at her home and she was Jamaican. So, I mean, I learned life skills like there was no tomorrow. Uh, She was very strict about ironing. She was very strict about cooking, you know, Um, and she was able like to bring those things, but it became challenging after a while because she really wanted this relationship where it was like this son-mother relationship. But that was not the context that I had ever grown up in. You know, I was adopted very early on and treated very differently from other folks. And so this kind of image of what it means to be a son, it just wasn't as easy for me. So like when she was like sick one time and I asked her, like, is she okay? She said, yeah. So I said, kept going. You know, where my um, my best friend at the time, you know, and he was Jamaican too. He was like, are you sick? And uh, she was, are you okay? And she was like, yeah. And then he was like, well, I'll make you some tea. I'll do this and I'll do that. And those concepts of, like, affection in that way were so foreign to me. But yet there was such an angry moment because I couldn't do those things. 
Well, you know, it, 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 it's a reminder that so many of those things that, um, you know, we do to make life soft and pleasant for people, we know to do them because we've received that, you know, we've received that love for people uh, from others, so we know how to pay it forward. But you, uh, my young man, were growing up with little love, a lot of intervention from outsiders, and downright abuse. So you hadn't really learned uh, to engage in that way. How did you start to heal? What was your process of healing? I think healing is something that like we're always on a continuous journey of, right? And what I will say is that I just turned 30. And on my 30th birthday, I thought it would be like a regular day. I would just go to work, you know, continue about the day. But there was just such a reflection moment where I can say that I felt proud of, of like myself and proud about where I'm at today. You know, I think there is adversity that everyone experiences, right? And we can't play like a Prussian Olympics with that. And everybody has their own cup of water to drown in. But the reality is like, do you take that and you use it to become more resilient? And at least in my story, I've been able to found an organization that has been able to meaningfully contribute to what does reform look like? How do we keep families together more? How do we make sure and ensure that there's a pathway for young people to be self-sufficient, to be able to get the services that they need? And so for me, part of my healing has been so rooted in being in radical service and being in service to others who are in that same situation. Well, and that's what you've done right now. I mean, think of us as radical service at its finest. What do you want us to know? And, you know, I, I mean the rest of us, those of us who aren't as familiar with the foster care system. What do you want us to know about it? What are the misconceptions that you think a lot of us have about it? Yeah, so what we know about some of the myths around foster care is that there's been research that shows that most of America actually believes that children are in foster care because of something that they did. And so that's actually not true, right? So that's the first thing I want to go ahead and let people know. Children come into foster care because they've been physically, emotionally, sexually abused. Their parents have deceased. There's no, the original caretaker is not able to be there for them. And then once we're in the system, you know, it's a roller coaster ride. It's, you know, we were removed from our original home, replaced in a foster home. And if you don't fit in, if you don't, um, if you misbehave, you find yourself at the next place and at the next place and potentially even a group home. And the real feeling about being in foster care is that no one truly has an obligation to stay in your life, to be in your life. And you move around so much that you don't actually have those connections anymore. And this affects people who look like me disproportionately. 53% of all Black families will experience a child abuse investigation before their child's 18. That's 53%. Okay. 53% of Black families have experienced a child abuse investigation before the child is 18. Yes. That's according to the American Public Health Journal. What, what, what do you think accounts for that? I mean, if I had to hazard a guess, it's because there's just more intervention in Black folks' lives. There are more people, there are more people in the lives of Black mothers, I think, uh, you know, making judgments, uh, whether appropriate or not. There are more people watching us, I think, that 
you know, we tend to be more policed. Uh, do you think I'm onto something with that? Well, you're definitely onto something. Let me go ahead and like share a couple things here. Number one, um, the top referrals to child abuse agent to child protective services is going to come from police and education. So the education system and the police system. And what we know is that 64% of the cases that are actually in foster care today, the 424,000 young people, is that 64% of those folks are in foster care because of poverty, you know, uh, excuse me, for neglect, which typically means it's connected to poverty. And so when we think about who's making judgments around families who, oh, you're saying, hey, that kid has wore the same um, clothes for three days in a row, let me go report, thinking that that is a gesture of like doing some good for the child. And so we have a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misunderstandings around poverty-related issues that end up calling Child Protective Services, having someone look at the cabinets, do you have enough food, asking you invasive questions, and sometimes even taking your child and putting them into um, foster care. There are, there are 3 million reports a year, child abuse reports a year. Only 250,000 of them actually end up being in, uh, uh, end up in removals. How do you, as someone who's been through the system, Sixto, how would you advise people to make better judgments? Because on the one hand, I hear you, and it concerns me, right? The thought that we're breaking families up because they're poor, uh, you know, maybe because uh, some child has to wear the same clothes over and over again, that might be viewed as evidence of neglect, you know, instead of just let's find that family some help. So that troubles me. But I'm also troubled by all of the abuse and all of the neglect that goes unreported. Because just like, you know, in some cases, people look at uh, African-American women and judge us harshly and sometimes quite improperly. Sometimes people look at young African-American kids like you who were being abused and they don't take their victimhood seriously. So you were abused and nobody believed you. You were also in a situation where it sounds like you believe you were taken away from your mother um, under circumstances that concern you. How do you strike a balance? Because just like we shouldn't be breaking up families just because they're poor, we also shouldn't be turning our backs on kids who are being abused, who are being left in abusive homes like you were uh, when you were so young. How do we do better? Well, the first thing I would say is like, you know, there were folks who believed me, like my school, my teachers were calling the child welfare agents, the child protective services, right? Um, some of the workers even believed me, but some of the stuff didn't constitute a removal. Right. You, you for for my adopted mother, she was still providing an education for me. I still was getting to school every day. So it wasn't illegal for her to be like, you don't get to go to a private school. But what's so interesting is that the rules were if I would have just answered a question, the question of do you feel safe? And I would have said no, that would have been the legal lever for a child welfare to come in and remove me. But for the two years, I when when they would ask me that question. I was just thinking to myself, I'm not going to die today. What do you mean safe, you know? Um, 
And so I didn't answer that question in a way that gave them the point that said, hey, let's go get you. And so the design of the way that we report abuse is wrong. And so literally today, in order to report abuse in most states, you have to pick up the phone and you have to make a phone call and you have to answer a series of questions that are pretty invasive. And then they'll determine if they're sending out an investigator within 24 hours, within three days, that investigator comes talk to you. And sometimes they're talking to you in front of the people that you are talking about abusing you. And so it becomes very challenging. Talk to us about some of the ways that Think of Us is working to help improve the system, because some of it, I mean, some of what you're describing seems to be pretty common sense. If you're concerned that someone's being abused, you don't ask them questions about that in front of the person uh, who they say is abusing them. I mean, that just seems like common sense 101. But talk to us about uh, specifically some of the initiatives and some of what Think of Us, your organization, and let's just be really clear, Sixto Cancel, after having lived through all of this hell, used that pain uh, to add, to create something wonderful and good. I mean, talk about paying it forward. Uh, tell us what Think of Us wants to change. How are you going to make this system better? One of the things that we're looking to do in the foster care system today is shift who's taking care of the young people in the system. Relatives, grandma, uncles, aunts have the opportunity to like raise their hand and step up if we give them the right supports, if we give them the same supports that we give foster parents. I'll tell you, you know, three years ago, I was in Spanish Harlem and my sister calls and she says, hey, there's a family reunion on our father's side. And was like, do you want to go? And I was like, absolutely, I want to go. So I'm walking through this park and, you know, being a Afro-Latino, uh, Puerto Rican, like literally almost any family could have been our family because we come in all types of shades. Right. And I was like trying to figure out who's who. We finally arrive at um, my biological father's family's you know, reunion. And I don't have words to describe how moving the moment was. I mean, from radical acceptance to people being curious of who I was and just realizing that, you know, I was my father's son. But there was this moment where I became completely numb because I kept asking who was whom. And then there was a sibling set that was running around. And these four young people were running around. And I was like, who are these? And I would just hear from our cousins. Oh, those are cousins. Those are cousins. And I finally get to the bottom of it that I had four uncles and aunts who were foster adoptive parents and foster adoptive parents for longer than I have been alive. And in that moment, all I can do is pull out my phone and GPS to the last foster home that I was in. And it was 58 miles away. And the reason why this was so shattering to me was because there was a moment when I was 15 years old that I said the ship has sailed on finding a family. I have been in foster care all my life. I have been told there's no place for you to go. Make sure you make this place work. Don't, don't fit in as much as you can. Follow the rules as much as you can. You don't want to end up in a group home. And so at one point, I accepted that there was not going to be you no know, forever family that was I was going to be a part of. And I just said, let me get prepared for college. Let me get prepared for what life after teenage, life after high school looks like. That was a decision I made as a high schooler. 
And then here I am standing as a 27-year-old looking at, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of people who are related to me and that they were there taking in children from the foster care system and then adopting them as their own. And so for me, this is a, a representation of how fundamentally flawed our system is. No one dug into my biological father's side as much because there's this notion that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And so because my biological mother had her own um, uh, challenges, the system made assumptions about the rest of my family, right? And so what we're working on is, one, how do we right now make sure that if a young person comes into care, that that system is designed to explore family first, before we try to place with strangers. Secondly, I mean, incredible to me that at a time when you were being bounced around in the system, you had family members who were taking in young people just like you. You could have had a foster home with family members. So that sounds like another big break in the system when, uh, or, or a big problem. What you're saying is that when children are taken out, when they're taken out of the home and put into foster care, there's no effort to try to see if there are biological relatives who might be in a position to help support them or take care of them. Like, I'm surprised that they don't do, it seems like you should do that first. Yeah. Today, only 33% of young people are placed with kin or someone that they know. And out of that 33%, only 20% of those families are actually getting some of the same supports that foster parents get. And so let's this talk is about the second that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, let's talk about that. What you're saying, Sixto, is that when a foster child is placed with grandma or granddaddy or auntie or uncle, they don't necessarily get the same financial resources that a stranger would get for looking after the child. Is that what you're explaining to us? That is exactly right. So you come in, grandma, uncle, aunt, cousin takes in a biological relative, unless they get licensed as a foster parent, in many states, they get little to no support. But one of the things that we've been working on is how do we change that? And what we are so excited to see is that this administration, the Biden-Harris administration, said, look, that's not right. We should be placing with kin first. So their proposal to Congress and what they put in the budget is that how do we reimburse states higher, give states more money for placing with family than placing with a stranger foster parent? Your organization is working with the Biden-Harris administration in order to make that happen and give more support to family members who might then be able to step up and look after these children so they could stay in family. And in addition to that, we're looking at how do we actually reform the older youth services. When I was 15, I was part of financial literacy classes. I was part of a work to learn program where I learned how to have a job, how to show up on time, how to be able to budget my money, how to be ready for college. And so those programs are now outdated and they need more support and more funding. And so this administration has also allocated an additional $100 million to older youth services. So right now, what we're, focused for, what we're focused on is how do we change the laws? How do we change the policies to be able to make these programs work better? But on top of that, 
we also go in with states and we get hands-on supporting them. In California, we run the Kinship Navigator program where we give grandma, uncle, aunt, a, a virtual personal assistant who is there to fill out paperwork around, you know, a housing voucher, food stamps, like are doing the research to find whatever resources that they need to keep that family together. Because 58% of the families that we serve are making under $40,000 a year with two to three kids in their care. And we're serving 2,000 families in California. And in fact, before Think of Us, you founded another organization, didn't you? Stellar Works, uh, which offered tutoring and mentoring services to foster kids. Because again, you know, we were talking about some of those lessons you learn about being soft and loving, you know, when people need it. And if you've never received that, you don't know how to pay it forward. By the same token, there are other lessons about, you know, showing up on time for stuff, having a work ethic, balancing a checkbook, saving a little bit of your allowance. These are things that if you've been bounced around from home to home, you're missing a whole lot of life lessons, you know, frankly, that a bunch of other people just take for granted. So you help provide that sort of education to young foster kids too, don't you? Well, when, when I was in high school, I was so petrified about being able to get into college. I knew that that was the way I was going to be able to leave the situation that I was in. I had only seen foster youth literally leave the city that we lived in by going to college. And I had seen other parents that were older in foster care who were homeless, who had apartments that were empty. And so when I took my first SAT scores, I didn't do well. I didn't do well at all. And so I was very scared that a college wouldn't even accept me. And when I went to go get help, I'd get sent to these like day long workshops. But I was like, I need some real help. <laughs> and so I asked my teachers, hey, could you tutor me and other foster youth who are um, behind? And can you help us get you know a higher SAT scores? And from there, I had teachers at my high school step up. And the next thing you know, we had social workers all across the south uh, west, uh, the southeast region of Connecticut literally driving an hour just to bring kids in to get SAT prep. You are a builder. You are a builder. You are a creator. Uh, you are a founder. Um, so with all of that said, tell me what you have in store. Uh, what's coming up next for you? And I'm going to say this. I think that, you know, back to your point about healing, you said healing is an ever-evolving process. So is our growth. You know, things change and someone as dynamic as you, I think you will always be in process and growing and creating and building uh, and frankly, helping other people heal because that's what you're doing. But talk to us just a little bit about what's coming up next for you. So we, I in particular, can keep cheering for you. I, I am so very proud of and inspired by you. So I'm super excited because during the pandemic, um, you know, stuff hit the fan in a lot of people's lives. And one of the honors that we got to do was when Congress passed that $400 million exclusively just for foster youth, um, you know, we worked with 44 states to find 30,000 young people, connect them, um, to to get pandemic relief funds. And so in that process, we had literally tens and tens and tens of thousands of young people share with us what were some of their top needs, what were some of their top concerns. And what's so crazy is that in the same application where youth were like, we need money for this, this, and this, rent, food, housing, and so forth, 
when we asked them what were some other solutions besides money that they wanted in their life, they talked about getting connected to someone in the career that they want to work in. They talked about resume support. They talked about um, helping get prepared for interviews. So our young people want to work and our young people want to be connected to family. So I have this new itch around me where I'm like, I know the infrastructure bill has just put in trillions of dollars into the economy. I'm wondering who's fixing the electric car stations, who's helping build, you know, operate the digital saw machines. I'm thinking deeply about like, how do we get more jobs to our young people because they want to work? And honestly, we are problem solvers. We've had to navigate so much of life's adversity in doing so. And so we are great employees. And then the second thing is like, how do we lean into like making kinship, you know, the primary placement for young people? How is it that it is by default that we're always looking at family? And so we have narrative change to do. We need to be talking more about what does it mean to support grandma? What does it mean to support uncles and aunts taking in their relative? And our next thing is to go ahead and continue to push that. And we just launched what we call the Center for Lived Experience, which is our research and our policy arm of Think of Us, which is looking at how do we make this a reality and not just an idea. Think of us, and we're going to put up uh, your website uh, right now, in fact. Before you go, tell us how we can support you. How can we help? So there's a couple of different ways you can help. Number one, always feel free to make an investment through a donation to us. Um, number two is we're going to need people to you know subscribe to our mailing list because we're going to have calls to action to talk to your congressperson about what does it mean for a family to go ahead and take in a relative. And you don't have to have that experience to be a voice on it. And so we want to activate a lot of people as we work towards that. Sixto Cancel, you're a hero. Uh, you're an inspiration, and you are exactly uh, what I think people need to be reminded of, and that is the power to take a dark situation and turn it into something absolutely magnificent and beautiful and powerful, uh, and you are changing the world. You're changing the situation that you grew up in. You are making it better for young people uh, going forward. So, we're all very grateful to you for that. Sixto, cancel. Think of us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I feel like, you know, being in foster care, sometimes you feel invisible. It's an invisible population, but it is these opportunities that actually uh, enable us to speak truth to what happens in the dark. I see you and we all see you. Thank you for being here. <laughs> <laughs> 